Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we praise you today. And we praise you for uh, the continuing ways that you work in our lives, break into our lives, and into this world. So we pray today, God, that you would um, speak to our hearts through your word. You would convict us um, of what it is in our lives that does not look like you, Lord, and help us to humbly um, submit to you in all things as Lord of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Allison mentioned, we're continuing our series, The Old, the New, and You. And one of the main goals of this series is for us as Christians, us as the church, to recognize God's authority in the scriptures and to begin to live accordingly. Um, We want to submit our lives to God's design, to his plan, to his life that he has for us. And there's no better revelation of that to us than what we find in God's words in the Bible. And... Part of this series um, is digging into some deep topics, too, that are relevant to our culture today. Uh, But we want to know what God has to say about those things. We want to know how we, as the people of God, consistently portrayed in the Old Testament and New Testament as people set apart, people who live differently, how can we as Christians interact in a way that is Christ-like and healthy in the face of some of these um, really difficult topics that we live in and are surrounded by in our culture today. So... Last week, Allison kicked it off with Genesis 1 and 2. She talked about God's design for creation, God's design for humanity, um, and this complementary nature between things. There's the light and the dark, the land and the sea, male and female. He created them. And she talked about two different kinds of creating. There was a specific word for when God creates something out of nothing, and another word for when God uh, creates something out of something, and the, the ability God gives creation to further life, creating something out of something. So the ground brings forth the vegetation. We, we as humanity, we can bring forth life, something out of something as we multiply, as God instructed Adam and Eve to do. So on that foundation of God's design for um, humanity and for creation, we're continuing now into Genesis 3 today. And we're talking about, over the next couple of weeks, our sin problem. We, as humans, as we will see very quickly, paradise turned sour, and a lie was believed, and actions followed, uh, which led humanity into an area that God did not desire for us. It was not part of God's perfect plan, yet it is something that is not above or beyond God to fix and address. And so as we talk about how the Old Testament builds this, uh, this case that we are sinful people, we will constantly remind ourselves of God's goodness and grace throughout. Uh, Because from Genesis 3 and so forth, God has a plan. God has a plan to redeem us from our sins. It is the same one today who redeems us as it was going to be who redeemed Adam and Eve. Before we dig into Genesis 3, I wanted to give you just a little bit um, of classroom exercise on how we read the Old Testament Uh, The Old Testament has four major genres or types of literature. If you remember back to English class, you know that a poem is a little bit different than a historical narrative, right? Well, the Old Testament is comprised of different books that were assembled, and some of them are written with different genres, different literary styles. And so the four major ones, and you can sub-break some of these, but the four major ones for us today, uh, the books of the law, that's the Torah, This is the same law with which Judaism and the Jewish faith was built on and has been consistently built on since the book of Exodus. 
Then we have historical books. Now remember, the Old Testament as we have it is also the scriptures for the Jewish people, and it is also the recorded history of Israel, which is why we have kings and kings and kings and lineage, and this season they were faithful, this season they weren't. We have a lot of history intermixed with this as well. And if we are children of Abraham, like Jesus alludes to, right, it's our spiritual history as well. Even if it's not our genealogy, it is still our spiritual roots and our spiritual history. And then we have types of prophecy. This is when God is breaking in specifically to communicate with his people, often calling them to repent, to turn away from their sin, to come back. And interlaced with that history, um, well, the prophecy can be interlaced in some of the historical narratives, uh, but it can also be sort of like end times, apocalyptic in nature. It can be metaphorical in nature. Uh, Prophecy is kind of a broad genre. And then we have wisdom literature, like the Psalms, like Song of Solomon and so forth. A lot of this is poetic. It's artistic in nature. Uh, Many of the Psalms were songs. So we don't get the full gist reading the words as what they would have had hearing the music or or the, the rhythm or things to accompany it. Why does this all matter, you might ask? Just let me read the Bible. Well, it matters because we approach poetry different than we approach the Encyclopedia Britannica, and we should be there very thankful that the whole Old Testament is not written in haikus, right? You read the book of law differently than you would read prophecy, and knowing what you are reading helps you better understand what it's saying, the approach they were taking and communicating it, and it helps you better understand how they would have heard and received it then and how we hear it and receive it today. So a practical tip, if you're digging into the Old Testament, um, if you have a good study Bible, read the introduction. It will tell you what type of genre it is. Um, or if not, do a little research, and it will help you better receive and understand what is being communicated to you in that particular book of the Old Testament. So there's four major themes that we're going to look at overarching through the Old Testament. Uh, Two of them we're going to hit on today. We were going to do three, uh, but when my sermon got to about 50 minutes, Allison said, hey, we're going to make this two sermons, and I said, you're right. So uh, we're going to look at the first two today, monotheism and sin, and then next week we're going to look at Babylon. What does this story of Babylon and this struggle with Babylon in the Old Testament tell us about God and sin and his redemption, and how does it speak into how we see the same things happening in our world today as the body of Christ? And then the last theme is going to be covenants, God's promise, and we're going to pair that with the Gospels in a couple weeks, because the covenants and the promises God's make, God makes very much is the good news to the people in the Old Testament before they know all the details surrounding the coming Messiah. So monotheism today This is the first one, and this is the brief one today. Mono means one, and theism means belief in God. So monotheism is the belief in one God. This is different than polytheism. So Greek culture, they had a religious system. They had many different gods with different attributes. If you wanted a good harvest, you would pray or sacrifice to this God. If you wanted to have a healthy family, it might be a different God. Uh, they, They believed in multiple gods, polytheism. Poly means multiple That's not how God's people lived. That's not how the Jewish people lived. That's not what we hear in the Old Testament about God's design for creation. Allison reflected this very well last week in her sermon. She said that there is one God, as Genesis says in 1 and 2, there is one God who is above all others, and that God is the creator, existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So the creation narrative sets a story. It's not just an account of what happened, but it remains an ongoing lens for all who wish to know God. When we approach the scriptures, the entirety of scriptures were written with this notion that there is one God above all, Lord of creation, creator of the heavens and earth. So in the creation narrative, we see, we see what was in the beginning before sin. We also see reflected what will be restored if we look at the last couple books of Revelation when Jesus returns as promised. And then we find our foundational understanding for how we interact with God in between. Our lives don't need to be concerned about picking a God or choosing a God because God has made it clear that there is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So monotheism is a major theme throughout the Old Testament. There may be other gods or forces who masquerade as gods, but they are all lesser, they are all counterfeit, and those all aim to unseat the one true God from the throne of God's people throughout the Old Testament and the throne of God's people's hearts today. The Old Testament reinforces this, and that same truth goes on consistently throughout the New Testament as well. We don't always believe that, and we don't always act that way, which is what brings us to our sin problem. And we're going to spend the rest of this morning in Genesis chapter 3 and then touching on Exodus with the law. So Genesis 3 tells us how sin entered the world. <coughs> Excuse me. It tells us of this dialogue between the serpent and Eve. And I'm going to go through a few specific things about this because I grew up hearing this story in Sunday school. I grew up reading it myself. And I came to some conclusions about God and about how God acts in Genesis 3 that weren't really accurate. They weren't there in the text, in the Bible. And so fortunately, I heard some good teaching on Genesis later in life, and I'm like, okay, that changes things. Because most of my life, I figured God was handing out curses and punishments in Genesis 3. And if we don't look closely at the text, uh, we might believe that. But that's not the God that is portrayed here. So there's a few points of clarification I want to make as we go through Genesis 3, because I don't want you to fall into the same trap that I fell into when I would read this scripture passage as well. So it starts with the serpent. There is a serpent who is crafty, and the serpent strikes up a conversation with Eve. And we don't know if that serpent is Satan or if Satan is just working through the serpent, but what we do know is that the serpent is deceiving them from God's truth and God's word. There's something evil going on here, right? We know that there's evil behind this. So verse 1, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? He didn't. He was misquoting God, right? Did God actually say, that's a theme that'll come up again in future sermons, did God actually say, God didn't say that. God said that there was one tree that they couldn't eat from, and that all the rest of the things were given and made for them. What does the serpent do here? The serpent is painting God as somebody who is keeping something good from them, rather than God who is providing an abundant amount of life for anything they could possibly need. He's twisted Eve's mentality, her idea of God. Have we ever thought that way? Do we think that following God means that we give up all the things that make us happy? Or is following God finding abundant life and just steering clear of the few things that God said don't bring that life? Maybe we've thought that way before, but it's important. The serpent still uses that. The enemy still uses that 
deception for us today. So let's go on. Verse 2. So the woman's there. She said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, if you're not reading carefully, you might miss this. Did God tell them they couldn't touch it? No, he didn't tell them that. So Eve is already starting to buy into this deception, right? God is harsh. If I even touch this tree that I'm not supposed to eat from, he's going to smite me down. I don't know how many people that, I, that I've come across that think if they walk into a church, God's going to hit them with a lightning bolt because of all the bad things they've done. People still believe this harshness of God today. And there are some reasons that we can believe that God is just and that God um, has anger just like we have anger, but that's not what God is doing here in this story. Eve has believed the deception already, and so the, the serpent is ready to pounce. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Also not entirely accurate. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here the serpent has finally pounced, taking a misquote, a, a misidea about the creator who provided everything for them to live in and live with, and he twists it into a half-truth. And the enemy still does that in our world today. And so as we go on in this passage, I want to make a couple other things clear. First of all, Adam is right there with her. Because what does it say in the next couple verses? She takes fruit and eats it and gives it to Adam who is there with her. Gives it to her husband. And he was silent. How many sins and atrocities in this world have been committed because men who knew what was good and right and just said nothing? Right? Just something to think about. That's maybe a different sermon series for later down the road. But I say that to say this. The sin is not pinned on Eve alone. Both of them were there. Both of them, male and female. Through both of them, sin entered the world. And then there's one other thing I want to clarify here. And this, this for me was kind of like the mind-blowing revelation here. Because we get into these consequences and these curses. And I thought that God was cursing humanity for a large portion of my life. But that's not what the text says. God says that the serpent is cursed. And that there will be enmity between serpents and humanity. We see that today, right? I don't like snakes. <laughs> right? And then God announces consequences for the sin, how it is going to change and affect this creation, this order that he had given, how that's going to start to be tempted to fall into chaos. But these aren't curses that he gives to Adam and Eve. And then God said that the ground will be cursed as a consequence of this, showing not just the human consequences of sin, but how sin really does destroy and mess up everything. Even creation itself is not free from the effects of sin. And so let me say this again. If you ever thought in the Genesis story that God curses humans because of their sin, that's not what the text tells us. Rather, Sin brings consequences, right? And if we had time now, we could dig into Romans, and Paul would argue in Romans that the consequences of sin is curse enough. God doesn't have to heap on consequences and curses because sin brings division, brokenness, separation from God, and ultimately death. Sin brings its own curses to humanity and to creation. And so after God is done explaining these consequences, 
God removes them from the garden. Again, I thought this was a punishment. I thought God removing them from Edom was like, all right, you just can't have all this good stuff that I made for you now because you were naughty. But that's not the case. I now view it as an act of mercy, and here's why. If humans could eat from the tree of life and have sin in them, then their sin would also live forever. Does that make sense? God removes them from the thing that would make their sin endure forever, indefinitely. And so God sets into course his plan to bring the answer to the sin problem. Because the Messiah, his son Jesus Christ, would come and would taste death himself in a very terrible way to take on the sin of the world so that we can be saved from the sin and the consequences of sin. Without death, the cross wouldn't have come about. And God didn't want humanity to forever be dead in our sin, did he? He wanted a way for us to be restored to relationship, and it was going to take sacrifice, even that of his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that's Genesis 3 in a nutshell. I hope that helps you better understand what's going on there. Obviously, you know that sin continues and things unravel quickly. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Tower of Babel next week, um, a little bit about Abraham and covenants the week after that. But let's fast forward just a little bit to Egypt and to Exodus. Because now we have the law. God gives the law. And Israel, God's people, the Hebrews that were slaves in Egypt, um, there's a point here that I think is important to make. I I always viewed the law as punishment as well, right? What little kid doesn't think the rules are punishment somehow at some point in their lives? Maybe you still think that today. But it was shown, Israel was shown God's grace even before the law was given. God saved them out of Egypt. If you remember the Ten Commandments and the Charlton Heston movie, God miraculously saves his people from their bondage, right? He saves them from slavery, from being yoked to this country that doesn't care about their God and care about who they are. God saves them out of Egypt and he leads them. It was an act of grace to deliver them from their bondage. And so God's law was built on that grace. God's law was built on that same life before it was even clarified to his people in the desert. Romans 5.8, Paul writes, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so God's law was not given to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai in the desert as a punishment, but God demonstrates his power to save them even from Egypt through miraculous events. And then in the grace of that, in the mercy in that, even in the midst of their sin, even in the midst of their slavery and their bondage to the sin, to Egypt, God delivers them and he gives them this law. Because God actually wants clarity, right? We, we live in a culture that thrives on gray area and it was no different then. People, as long as it's not implicitly wrong, people will carry on and do what they want in our culture. But God wants clarity, and he gives the Ten Commandments through Moses. These commandments are so clear that we still operate in them today, right? They were the foundation for our judicial system in our country and the laws and the morality um, and are used across the world in the same way. This clarity is important, and as we continue in the scriptures, these commandments are consistently upheld as a truth that helps define humanity's sin convict humanity of its sin so that we might repent and turn away from that sin. 
This is why God wants clarity. God gives the law in the midst of the sin so that one day the Messiah will fulfill the law and save us from our sin. And so even the giving of the law is an act of grace. It's an act of mercy so that we know what we can do that is not according to God's life, his design, his creation for us. And to clarify the doctrine of sin, this is important too if we're going to keep talking about sin. And this is part of this theme throughout the Old Testament. God's people in the Old Testament believed that sin was inescapable, right? It was inescapable. That all human beings and all groups of people were imperfect. They rebelled against God, intentionally or unintentionally. I know many of us, we, maybe we haven't intentionally rebelled against God in our lives, but we've definitely done it by accident, haven't we? <clears throat> and that sinfulness affected not just the people, but the creation too. This is one of those ethics of Israel, of the Hebrew people, of God's people. They believed that all humans were sinful. Now, Paul in Romans, who was a devout Jew himself before turning to Christ and meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, he understands that when he writes in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He isn't giving any exceptions to that, right, other than Christ himself. And so this idea of sin is pervasive. It's everywhere. It's, it's you, it's me, it's our neighbors. It's even the creation that we live in. There's a, a word for this. It's called original sin. And our culture has a really hard time believing this and, and accepting this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are formed in sin. We are born into sin. And the typical way in our culture is to think is if we just do enough good things to outweigh the bad things, then what? We'll go to heaven, right? We'll be saved. If we just do enough good things to outweigh the bad things, then we'll be saved. We'll go to heaven. But that's not a biblical belief. It's one of the reasons that we have this series. That's not a Christian belief. Because if we could do that, the cross wasn't necessary, was it? Jesus didn't have to die. There is this thing called original sin, and that is the biblical understanding that we are born with sin, we are born into sin, and we are in bondage to that sin. We are tied up to it. We are weighed down by it. And that is why for God's people in the Old Testament, for Israel, over and over, years after year, the sacrifices keep coming. For the same sins, for the same failures. And praise be to God that even in the sin, and even in our sin, he continues to break in, right? He did it for his people there. He does it for us today because he makes a way for us to be saved from that sin. When Jesus the Messiah takes on the sin of the world and takes on the sin of us, and he dies on that cross. The Old Testament teaches us that sin is pervasive. We can't escape it. We cannot do enough good things. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that somehow. But where it is impossible with us, it is possible with God through Jesus Christ. And so even, even though the sin problem is massive and huge and insurmountable, it is not something that God can't fix and address in your life. Now, today we still struggle with skin, sin, obviously. From the beginning, from the fall, we just worked through Genesis 3. Humanity has had a sin problem from then. It's obvious in scriptures. It's obvious when you look at the world around us. So with that understanding, 
the question is, how do we live today knowing that? Knowing that all of us are untouched from this. Friends, this is why Jesus came. And this is why knowing Jesus Christ today means so much, particularly if you call yourself a Christian. Jesus came to deal with this sin through his death and resurrection. That sin has been paid for. It doesn't mean it no longer exists though, right? How many of you, once you met Jesus, have lived a perfect life? Yeah, me neither. But that's the point. We live in an in-between time. The kingdom of God has come and been established through Jesus Christ, and we can experience the riches of God and that new life, the grace and the forgiveness of God. But the sin is still existing, and the sin still corrupts our world, and people are still deceived just like Eve was and Adam was, and people are still led astray. We live in this two-kingdom in-between time. And we're going to dig into this more in the gospel message in a couple weeks uh, but Paul gives us a picture that kind of answers that question. How do we live in the midst of it today, knowing that we live in the in-between times? Paul writes this in Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. You were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This idea of freedom is how we are called to live in the midst of the sinful world. Even though we have sinned and even though sin endures, we are called to live in freedom. Now the world has a different definition of what freedom is. The world tells us that freedom is doing whatever we want. And the Bible tells us that freedom is knowing Christ and living abundantly in him. Two very different answers. The world tells us that sinning without regret or remorse, that that's what freedom is. And the Bible tells us that sinning actually binds us to death and that we cannot undo it without the cross. Friends, Jesus is freedom. Knowing Jesus is freedom, experiencing his presence and his love for you is freedom. And we're going to look into that more and unpack that in the coming weeks. But God created humanity for freedom. They were free to eat of any tree but one. They were free to thrive. And they chose bondage to sin. But through Jesus, friends, that freedom is restored. And that is the gospel for us today. Now, today, we begin to live for Christ. We live into his freedom, knowing that sin no longer is tethered to us because of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And when we start to follow Jesus and live our lives like Jesus and invite his influence as Lord of our lives, we begin to taste and see that we truly can experience freedom. The same freedom, not, not fully, we're not going to get it fully in the broken world, but man, we can taste and see that God is good. So in the coming weeks, as we dig into God's authority and scriptures, let's do this. Let's lay down our pride. Let's lay down our sin, humbly. Let's confess it. Let's find grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ knowing him, experiencing him, growing in our understanding of his word. And let's shine brightly the light of Christ that we were made to do. Let's pray. Lord, our sin problem runs deep. That truth is inescapable when we dig into your word. 
Sin plagues humanity, it plagued Israel and all the surrounding nations. It plagued the Roman Empire of Jesus' time. It plagued the early church and caused struggles for them, and it still plagues us today. But praise be to God. We thank you, God, that you've made a way through Jesus Christ to experience freedom from that sin. And we pray simply today, God, that we would experience that freedom now in this place. May you wash us over with your grace. May you cut the binds that tie us to our sin. Help us to experience life in Christ. A foretaste of what is to come, but really a truly good life worth living today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.